The following audio is from Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. I've been looking forward uh, to this morning um, between my uh, shoulder surgery and uh, my trip looking for partners to Tennessee. I haven't had a chance to uh, teach you much so far this year, and the Lord has put on my heart that uh, as we talk about being a kingdom people, that we would look at the book of 1 Thessalonians together. So I invite you, if you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, take the one that's in the rack there in front of you, and if you don't uh, have an English Standard Version, which I preach by, and you would like to take that one, we would love to make that our gift to you. First Thessalonians is after Colossians. So you got you got first and second Corinthians in your New Testament. Sometimes you can find those by moving your thumb by there. And then Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's easy to remember those. Gentiles eat pork chops. That's how you can remember those. And right after Colossians you'll find First Thessalonians. While you're turning there just a couple of quick facts since we're going to study the book together. I think it'd be good for you to have some context uh, concerning uh, Thessalonica and that city and where it's at and how the church came to be there. Um, uh, Thessalonica is actually one of the only uh, cities that Paul planted a church in that uh, still exists today. Today, however, the city is not called Thessalonica, it's called Thessaloniki. And you, know, you can find that on a map. They'll bring a map up here. It kind of shows Greece and where that's at. And, and uh, uh, Paul, was, he was on the Turkey side. Uh, uh, what's today's modern-day Turkey? That's where, he was, that's where the church of Ephesus was. And then uh, there was the Macedonian call that uh, Luke would come to him and ask him to come to Greece. And he would move over to Thessalonica, and that's where he would begin to preach. Uh, the reason he went there, Paul had a method... Uh, to his church planting strategy, he would always go where there was a synagogue. And there was a pretty large Jewish population in Thessalonica, and they, and they had a synagogue. In fact, uh, the Jewish population was uh, so large that by uh, the time of World War II, there were about 60,000 Jews uh, that inhabited Thessalonica. When the Nazis uh, overran Greece and they conquered uh, Thessalonica, they, uh, they took virtually all 60,000 Jews to concentration camps, and all but 1,200 uh, were killed and executed. And so they literally almost exterminated the Jewish population there uh, at that time. Um, when Paul arrives there, there's this Jewish population. He goes to the synagogue. That's his method. He preaches, and uh, he's there, uh, but a riot breaks out. Now, he'd been in Philippi. He'd gotten beaten in Philippi. So he leaves Philippi. He comes to Thessalonica. He preaches in Thessalonica. A riot breaks out, and so they've got to get Paul out of town. And Paul would go, uh, he would go into Berea. This is, uh, by the way, you can find all of this in Acts 17, 17 and 18. He goes to Berea. The scripture literally says that the, that the, people of Berea were more noble than the people of Thessalonica, and so he was received very well there, and the people of Thessalonica uh, found out that Paul was in Berea, so it wasn't enough that they kicked him out of Thessalonica, 
they traveled 50 miles to Berea to uh, confront him again there. So Paul would leave there, and that's where he would go to Athens. You know the story of Paul pe- uh, preaching on the Areopagus, and then he would go to Corinth. So when Paul writes the book of First uh, Thessalonians, when he when he writes back uh, uh, to the church there that he left uh, in Thessalonica, um, he's in Corinth. That's where he's at, and First Thessalonians is the first book of the New Testament that is written. Now, some of you, you're, you're going to write, go, no, 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 Matthew's the first book. As we have it in, in order, as it was prepared for us by the church fathers, they thought they would give us the Gospels, because that's the time when Jesus was here. And then Acts was the time of church history. And I just told you some of that church history, how Thessalonica came to be a church. That's in Acts 17, and he writes him in chapter 18 when he's in Corinth. But the actual first New Testament writing is First Thessalonians. It's about 50 A.D. It's about 16 years after the crucifixion of Christ. And so I, I want you to think this through for a second. Uh, you're a member of the church at Thessalonica. You have your Old Testament, but you don't have any New Testament. Nobody has any New Testament. And you get this letter inspired by the Holy Spirit of God from the Apostle Paul, the one who came and preached to you Jesus, the one that you responded to. And this is the first writing inspired by the Holy Spirit of the New Testament. Does it cause you to see it with different eyes? Does it, now you're going to read it and you're going to realize, oh, when, when, the, when the Christians at Thessalonica read this, they hadn't, ever, they hadn't read Matthew yet. They hadn't read Mark or Luke or John. Acts wasn't written yet. Peter hadn't written a letter yet. Hebrews wasn't written yet. Romans wasn't written yet. This is the first of it. Now are you ready to read it? You ready to do it? We are going to go pretty fast. I'm going to try to get through verse 3 today. All right? Here's how Paul writes. It's Paul, Silvanus, which is the long formal and Latin name for Silas his traveling partner, and you know that they picked up young Timothy. So these are the three guys who started the church at Thessalonica. It's Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, uh, I I want us to look at 1 Thessalonians maybe like we've never read it before. I want us to look at it as if we're the church that the Apostle Paul would write to, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to to encourage us in our faith. I, I, I want us to read it as the kingdom people that God calls us to be. As we study the book of 1 Thessalonians together, sometimes I think it helps us when you're going to study a whole book to to find that that key verse, that thesis statement in a book. And I would suggest to you that in 1 Thessalonians, it's chapter 2, verse 12. If you just want to flip a page over there to chapter 2, verse 12, you'll find that the, the charge 
the admonition from the apostle to these that he's led to the Lord and baptized and put together into a church is to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom. One of the things that we know that God does, and he does it beautifully and remarkably, is when uh, Paul writes this letter, it's no longer just a letter from uh, uh, Paul to some friends. But inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, preserved by the Holy Spirit of God, uh, you have the uh, copy of this 2,000-year-old letter uh, right there in your lap. And you have it because God ordained it so. You have it because God inspired that. That's, that's, that's holy scripture. It is the word of God breathed to us. You have it because God preserved it. All those who would try to get rid of it and, and burn the scriptures and make sure that we don't have the scriptures and keep us from the scriptures, they couldn't stop the word of God. The word of God always accomplishes its purpose. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God lasts forever. And so sometimes those of us who have Bibles, how many of you have uh, more than one Bible? Could I see your hands? How many of you have more than five Bibles? Could I see your hands? How many are like me? You have more than 10 Bibles. Could I see your hands? Sometimes those of us who are so fortunate so many in this world that don't have a Bible in their own language, their own mother tongue. Sometimes those of us who are so fortunate to have Bibles start to take them for granted with a lot of familiarity. And we have them here on this shelf and have one in the car and I got one on my phone. But this is God's word. And God speaks to us and he writes this letter to us. I believe it's just as much written to the people of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Billings, Montana in 2018 as it was written to the Thessalonians of the first century of Greece. He writes this letter to us, inspired, uh, uh, breathed into by himself. And his admonition to us is, walk in a manner worthy of God who has called you into his kingdom. You and I are, we're children of the king. We're a kingdom of priests. We are are no longer the paupers and orphans of the result of sin and the darkness of our lives, but we have been born again to a new life and to a new faith and to a new relationship. God is indeed God the Father to you. And as God the Father, he just breathes this, this uh, wisdom, this life-changing word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, even the glory of the only begotten. And so we have this, and so we have this admonition that you and I aren't just a, uh, we don't just receive Jesus into our hearts, And then we know we have some fire insurance and we're going to go to heaven when we die and we're not going to go to hell. And then then we just live the rest of this life like everybody else, like every Joe Schmo and everybody who doesn't know Christ. That is not our calling. The, The reason you come out on a snowstorm on a Sunday morning is you don't want to forsake the assembling of yourselves together because you know that worship and fellowship in God's word has an important, integral part 
in your life. You and I are different than everybody else on the planet. And as kingdom people, what are some of the characteristics that make us different? Who are kingdom people? Well, the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the Thessalonians, he gives us some clues to this right in the very beginning of the introduction of his book. Now imagine, there's nothing else, there's nothing else in the New Testament written yet. Not one word's been written yet. Now, a lot of it's happened. Jesus has already been here on earth. So the story of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John has happened, but none of them have written that yet. And in Acts, as Luke would write the story, we are in chapter 17, where Thessalonica gets started. But it hasn't been written yet. The first words after the resurrection, inspired by God, are to the church. Do you see that right there? After it says Paul and Silas and Timothy, it says to the church. The first thing that I want to say to you this morning is that kingdom people are church people. Uh, you and I live in a, in a day and an age where uh, church isn't very important to people. It's certainly not important to those who are unbelievers, and we can kind of understand that. If they don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior... Do we just want people to to come here because it's the culturally accepted thing to do? Not really. The, the church is a pretty specific place. A church is uh, the uh, people who have given their lives to Jesus Christ. It's it's not the Kiwanis Club or the Elks Club or a country club or a political organization or a or a or a charity or a nonprofit. The, we are those who have been bought with a price. We are those who belong to Christ Jesus, and we are the called out ones. And that's what the word church means. It's the word ecclesia. It means you and I have been called out from the world. We, we live in the world, but we're not of the world. We're completely different than who we used to be. I used to want to sin. I don't want to sin anymore. I used to worship self. Now I worship Jesus. I used to be headed to hell and destruction, and now I'm headed to everlasting life, and I have grace and peace in all of that. And so kingdom people are church people. A lot of people will say, I, Paul, I, I, I've had bad experiences in church. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is because Satan hates the church. He hates the church and he does everything to work against it because Christ Jesus loves the church. In fact, the, the word of God says Christ Jesus loved the church and he gave his son to die for the church. The, the, the Ephesians talks about be, the, Christ Jesus will have glory forever in the church. The church isn't a building, and the church is an institution, and the church isn't an organization. The church are the people of God who've been saved through the shed blood of the Son of God, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, and who are looking forward to the return of God. So this is who we are. And to think that we've been saved by this God through the blood of his Son, and he calls us out away from the world, he doesn't call you out away from the world so that you can lone ranger it. He calls us into spiritual families. There are 114 uses of the word church in the New Testament. 97% of them are speak to a specific body, a, a local group like this one, of baptized believers who covenant together to worship God and fulfill the Great Commission. 
So sometimes people say, well, I'm a part of the church, but they're thinking of the big universal invisible church. And in a sense, we are brothers and sisters of every believer on the planet. But that's not really how the Bible uses the word church. 97% of the time, it's to the church at Thessalonica. It's the church at Ephesus. It's to the church at Colossae. It's to the church at Philippi. And I believe that God sees us in spiritual family units, and we are the church of Billings. We're the church of Emmanuel in Billings. And God calls us to that. I know there's some other things, and you're like, you know, kingdom people, church people, but there's some of these people I just don't like. Yeah, there's some of them I don't like either. (laughs) Church is family. You like everybody in your family? If you're sitting close to them, just don't cut your eyes at them right now. Sometimes people say, well, you know why I don't go to church is church is just full of hypocrites. There's some hypocrites in church. You know what a hypocrite is? It's a pretender. It's a faker. And uh, my dad said to one of those people on one occasion, he said, I don't come to church because they're hypocrites. He said, well, you can be with hypocrites for a short time here on earth in church, or you can be with them forever in hell. But you're always around hypocrites. Always. Sometimes people say, well, I don't want to do church because churches fight and fuss and fume. And they, and sometimes they do. You can tell from this passage what a church is supposed to be because the Apostle Paul says, to the church at Thessalonica, grace to you and peace. The church that you should be in, let me just tell you, the church that you should be in is a church that preaches the doctrine of grace that gives and extends grace to one another that includes forgiveness and love and bearing one another's burdens and lives in a unity of peace. And I'm going to tell you, frankly, there are, there are groups who call themselves a church that are not. They're cults. And there are some churches that are just dead and the Holy Spirit's not there. So find a church of people. You won't ever find a perfect group of people. <laughs> Emmanuel's not. The, the, the pastor of Emmanuel's not. You're not going to find a perfect group of people. If you ever find a perfect church, don't join it. You'll spoil it. <laughs> so we're not talking about a perfect people. But we're talking about a place where grace and peace abounds. Where you can grow in grace, you can grow in Christ, where you can love your brothers and sisters, a place where the word of God is is taught, where the Holy Spirit speaks to you when you're there. You feel God speak to you, a place where you have a a place to use your gifts and to serve, a a place that cares about sharing Christ to the darkness of the world. And the, the reality is many people never grow in Christ. They're not, they're not really kingdom people. They're saved. They're going to get into heaven by the skin of their teeth. They're going to get there one day. They've trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But they don't get that God puts us together in spiritual families as a church for our protection to fulfill the purpose of God. And outside of a church, let me just tell you, outside of a church, you neither have that spiritual protection nor can you really fulfill the purpose that God has for you. It's all over it. So the first words written of the New Testament are to the church. Kingdom people or church people. 
Second thing I want you to see in this introduction is that kingdom people are praying people. Just, just listen to this. The Apostle Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. There's so many people today that, let's be honest, when you pray, it's a last resort. You've done everything that you can do in your life, and when you have exhausted all of your resources, then you pray. And then you send up the SOS prayer. Lord, I'm really in trouble now. That's not how kingdom people live. Kingdom people live in prayer. Did you just hear the tenor of that? We thank God always for all of you constantly. There's some things about the Apostle Paul's prayer life that we recognize here. First of all, he says about Thessalonians, man, I've been praying for you all the time. And, and how, much, how, how much is all the time? It's continually. And who did he pray for? All of you. So he was always praying for all of them continually. Does that sound like your prayer life? Last week, uh, Pastor Jim rightly, rightly taught that we would never reach billings for Christ with just prayer. That's a true statement. If we just stay here in a holy huddle and all we do is pray, we'll never really reach billings for Christ. But if we go out in our own flesh, in our own energy, without the power of prayer and asking God to do the work, neither will we reach billings for Christ. The, 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 the old sage the old sage advice is this. This is, a, this is as good a theology as I can give it on the bottom shelf. In the Christian life, you should work like it all depends on you, and you should pray like it all depends on God. And which one of those is true? Yes. And when you put that formula together, the Holy Spirit infuses your work, and your work is double, tripled, multiplied, far beyond what you could ever accomplish otherwise. But to just pray and ask God to do it, God uses the church. He uses the people of God. He, he takes on flesh. He, he comes in among us. He gives us the gifts that we might love our neighbor, and we might love our enemies, and we might love the world to Christ Jesus. That's the, what he calls us to do. But it comes together with prayer. If your prayer life is stale, this is a good time to go through and start again and kind of refurbish it. If you, if you, are you always using the same words at the same time? I mean, is it just rote prayers? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Is that your prayer life? Is it, uh, dear Lord, thank you for this food. Be with the mashed potatoes. Be with the missionaries. Amen. Is that all it is? Is it, and the only other time you pray is when you're in the emergency room or the doctor's office? There's so many of us, our failure is, we kind of think God's really busy, and I don't want to bother God, you know, because God's really busy, and so I'll, I'll just do this myself. There's some things I can do on my own. The, the scripture teaches that without Christ, you can do nothing. I'm quoting from John 15, abide in me. Because without me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. It doesn't say you can do some things on your own, but then really make sure you pray for the big things. That is not what the scripture teaches. Without me, you can do nothing. So why is it that we get the idea that we're going to do some things for God? 
Yeah, I'm going to help God out a little bit. And we're called to pray. And, and I don't know why it is, but, but uh, if uh, we called a prayer meeting tonight, it'd be the lowest attended thing we would do all week at this church. And you signal how important it is when we do come together to pray. Some of you a while ago, we had, a, had an intentional prayer time. Pastor Jim led us to that, and your mind just wandered. You didn't even pray during the 30 seconds of it. Your mind just wandered. Some of you go like, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. I'm going to really pray. And you kneel to pray, and you pray for everybody you know, and then your knees hurt, and 30, minutes, 30 seconds later, you, it's, you're done. We, we have such a, such a spiritually short attention span as modern-day believers. James, the half-brother of the Lord, who would write the, the book after his name in the New Testament, James, had a nickname. Did you know that? Did you know they gave nicknames back in the old days as well? His nickname was Camel Knees. Which of you ladies would like to have that for a nickname? Have you ever seen a camel's knees? Have you ever seen pictures of them from where they fold themselves all up? He had calluses on his knees from praying. Martin Luther said on one occasion, I have so much to do today, I can't possibly get it done if I don't at least pray for four hours. We do it the opposite. I have so much to do today, I don't have time to pray. He knew that the more he prayed, the more God would get his to-do list done. But we don't think that way. And so what happens is we start to think like the world instead of like those who belong to the kingdom. We, we, we don't see with spiritual eyes. So, so when we watch Fox News and we watch CNN and we hear the world, we just believe all the lies that are regurgitated to us because we don't have spiritual truth that flows through us. We haven't been spending time with God. Kingdom people are, number one, they're church people. And number two, they're praying people. Number three on Paul's list, when he remembers them in his prayers, he remembers that kingdom people have a faith that works. Do you see that there? He says, I I remember from God our Father your work of faith. So he remembers that they, the Thessalonians, as they turned to Christ, that the faith that they put in Jesus Christ worked in their life. Now, don't, don't mess this up theologically. This isn't a faith of works. That's, that's not what the Apostle Paul is teaching. None of us get to heaven by good works, right? Say amen. amen. Okay, then I don't have to preach that. You get that. I can't work myself up into goodness or righteousness. I, I, I've got to be changed by the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit of God. But that faith that I put into Jesus Christ, it works. It changes me. It makes me like Jesus. It gives me a new perspective in life. I now have a kingdom's perspective in life. And I want to do what I never wanted to do before. It changes me completely. I'm a new creature in Christ. I I, I have different capacities. I see the world differently. The word of God comes alive to me now. The scripture says about the word of God, before faith, the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. You have to be made spiritually alive. When by faith we come to the cross of Christ and we trust Jesus Christ, we are made spiritually alive. We are regenerated. We have a new life in us and it changes us. I want to say to you plainly, if you think there's a place where you gave your life to Christ but there was no change, or if that faith doesn't work for you, it's not saving faith. It's, it, 
the relationship that you have with Jesus Christ isn't an intellectual ascent that there's a God and Jesus was a historical being and he went to the cross. It is you saying, here's my life. You take my life. You be the Lord of my life. You be the boss of my life. You tell me what to do. I'll be the slave. You be the master. And that revolutionary change creates a new me that looks entirely different. It's a faith that works. Paul says, when I pray for you, can you see Paul saying, I can't help but smile because I remember your work of faith. I remember that change. How how difficult was it to be a brand new baby Christian in Thessalonica? Well, a riot got started. They got thrown into jail. People got thrown out. Jason was the guy who they, they they couldn't meet in the synagogue anymore when they got thrown out. Jason was the one who said, meet in my church. They had to get Paul out of town. So when they got Paul out of town, they took Jason as the guarantor. I mean, they kept him in prison because they couldn't find Paul. I don't know how many of us would be Christians if being saved meant going straight to jail. Do you understand? These guys did. They were going to give their lives to Christ, no matter what the cost. And they understood that, and Paul talks about that. Secondly, or really, we're on our fourth point, but in this list of, as Paul remembers them in his prayers, he says, I remember your, your work of faith, and then he says, I remember your labor of love. And so we see here, this is the fourth point in the sermon, that kingdom people have a love that labors. Here's the thing, and I want you to understand this. Whenever there's real saving faith, there's always love that attends it. Always, always, always. When Paul would write to the church at Galatia in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, he says this, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. If someone claims to have faith and they don't have love, they don't have faith. And someone who claims to have love, who doesn't have faith, doesn't understand the real depth of agape love. They always go together. If you claim that you've got a faith relationship with God, and you hate your brother, and you're full of prejudice, and you're bitter, and and you're always fighting, and you don't really want to ever be around people, and you never share your faith, I, I doubt if you've really been saved. Because that's not what faith looks like. That's not how love attends that. When you love someone, I'm talking about the, the, the love that God gives, fills our hearts. When you love someone, you can labor on their behalf and it doesn't even feel like labor. You just love them. You just do things with them because you love them. I watch Hallmark movies with Patrice. I love her. It's what she wants to watch. It's not labor. It's not hard. Not the only thing doesn't have curse words and terrible stuff in it anyway. Do you understand? There's some things you do for your loved one, right? That you may wouldn't do for anybody else. But you do it with them. You do it for them. And you don't think to yourself, oh, this is so hard. It's the natural flow of love. And so that's what 
Paul is remembering about kingdom people. Kingdom people have a natural flow of love. How is it, how is it that Jesus can say, love your enemies? The world sure can't do that. People who are pretending to be Christians can't do that. How can you forgive those who, who persecute you and curse you? Unbelievers can't do that. They don't even have that capacity. But we, who have been forgiven so much and have the Holy Spirit of God, and his love has been shed abroad in our hearts, we have the ability to do things that the world can't do. The idea that Christians would be racist, or Christians would be bigots, or Christians would be hateful, or Christians, it should be so foreign to the, to the whole body of Christ that, it, that even to the world it wouldn't make sense. Jesus would say about the church and about the love the church has for one another that even the world would know that we are his disciples by the way that we tithe. Is that what the scripture says? By the, way, by the, by the version of the Bible that we carry? By, by we dress or our music style? By the way that you love one another. It's the evidence that you're a kingdom person. Outside of that, you're just pretending. Outside of that, this is, just a, this is just a religious exercise and there's nothing in it that can save you. You come to the cross. You give your life away. It's the experience of faith. It's the work of faith. And what attends that? A labor of love. And then there's a third thing here and it's the fifth point in our sermon. He says, I remember your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope. The last thing that I really have time to talk about this morning is that kingdom people have a hope that endures. There's a change that happens in us where we come to the word of God. We started there this morning and now we end there. We come to the word of God and we read that in the word of God, that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. And the scripture says that this same Jesus who came the first time as the babe in the manger, came the first time as the suffering servant, who came the first time to go to the cross for the atonement for our sins, will come again. But the next time he comes as the judge of the universe... He comes with only a name that he himself knows. He comes as King of kings and Lord of lords. And this is the hope that is in us. Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Some of you would have to admit that you're not kingdom people because you don't have any hope. Some of you are kind of like Winnie the Pooh's friend Eeyore. You're just, you know, you're just, well, I hope. I hope that happens. Your glass is always half empty. You're just, just kind of pessimist. Your favorite statement to your friends is, well, let me just be the devil's advocate. I just want to tell you, the devil doesn't need any more advocates. He doesn't. You know who needs advocates? Christ Jesus. And what the world needs is hope. It's a dark world, isn't it? Wars and rumors of wars. You know, the, the whole Olympics is a, just a facade. It's all smoke and mirrors. Have you noticed? It's supposed to be this moment where we all get together and we sing, We are the world. And, uh, and it just brings us together. And it, just across, the, just whatever it was, 50 miles from North Korea, and uh, North Korea's dictator sister showed up, and we all pretended for that two weeks. It's just a facade. And that's all the 
world has is a smoke and mirrors. There's no real hope in the United Nations. There's no real hope that anything's going to be solved for us politically. Our only hope is in Jesus. And the world desperately needs Jesus. And they need Christians who have this enduring hope. And if you are like, well, I don't know if I believe in Jesus today either. And if your prayer time is like, you pray and God doesn't do it, and so you're going to get back at God. Like, well, I don't know if I believe in you anymore. Boy, you really hurt God. We, we function without hope, and so the world doesn't see any message in us that draws them or attracts them. I'm going to teach you in just a couple of weeks when we get there. Thessalonica becomes the next Antioch. Jerusalem was the first place where the church was, and they, and they didn't really do what they were supposed to do. So God actually had to send a persecution on them so that they would disperse and it was actually called, in 70 AD, it was called the dispersion. But he, he kind of had to bypass them because they quit doing what they were supposed to do. And he went up the road to Antioch. And Antioch became the, really the next missionary church. And they sent out uh, Paul and Silas, sent out Paul and Barnabas. Um, but then there came a time when Thessalonica became that church. And their faith became contagious. Do you, how many of you have got the, the crud, the cold, the flu, the stuff that's been going around? Have you had it? Somebody in your house that had it? Do you know why you get it? It's contagious. And we tend to use the word contagious with negative stuff like flus. But contagious works with positive stuff too. And the world should catch Christ because the love of Christ, the faith that we have in Christ, and the hope that we have in Christ should be contagious. You know, when we have the flu, you don't even want to shake somebody's hand. Somebody comes up and shakes your hand, you go, ah, I've got the flu. How great would it be that when you just shake hands with somebody, they just go like, wow, this guy's different. She's different. Because Christ just oozes out of our pores and out of our soul, and it's contagious to all those who could be around us. No one could be around us and not know. You know, when you're around somebody and they're like, you're like, oh, you know, right? But what if they were around you and you were just like, hallelujah, praise the Lord, amen. I got one amener and I had to bring her in from the south. Your language, your, your life should just let people know you're a believer. This is what it means that a hope that endures. I'm out of time here, but there's an application to this sermon. An application that I, I want you to seriously think about this morning. I want you to ask yourself a question this morning. Am I a kingdom person? I'm not asking you if you're saved. I'm asking you if you think like and walk like and live like a child of the king. Kingdom people are church people kingdom people are praying people. Kingdom people have a faith that works, a love that labors, and a hope that endures. Did I describe somebody else? Or am I describing you? Are you a kingdom person? I want to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed.
Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.